Frank Meek Show. So, hockey, Frank, huh? Yeah, actually, I coached it for years. Uh, uh, when I lived in Iowa, I coached hockey for uh, about 12 years. Coached probably over 70 teams uh, from a high level on roller hockey and also uh, at a pretty high level in ice hockey for youth. So, yeah. That's it. So you can actually skate on the ice. I can skate and play. And so tell me what it is about me that's wrong with me that when I put skates on, both feet angle inwards, my knees start to burn. Sometimes I I shart a little bit, <laughs> generally a little peepee, and I just yeah. can't get past three feet without falling on my ass. It's the two things. One is that you're not bending your knees. You're probably standing. Uh, did I mention they burn? Yeah, but yeah. And then also is that they're probably your skates weren't tight enough, and you need to stand more straight on your ankles because you're bending on your ankles. Well, right it now. is winter, and I look forward to you taking me to the local mall, and you can show me how to not die. And I'll tell you, just like the most important thing is that I coached every kid uh, from two years old and up. You're going to fall. The most important part is that you get back up and keep skating. That's something that. I keep with everyone. So. So hockey is, is an important part of your life. Can you elaborate on that? Okay. Tell us a little bit more. Yeah, so hockey was, uh, I grew up, I didn't get to play the game. I loved the game, the Flyers, the Philadelphia Flyers. The hockey team where I grew up was only six blocks away from where I grew, where I lived. Diehard Flyers fan, born the year they won the Stanley Cup. They haven't won it since. Huge resentment. Um, <laughs> I keep with, I think I like it with Daniel. But anyway, um, so hockey was always a big sport. When I got out of prison, I played sports a lot in prison. And I knew that football and basketball were great at equalizing. I said, but I love the game of hockey. And, uh, yeah, I got a job with the Philadelphia Flyers in 1996 out of prison. Wait a second. Whoa, 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 whoa. Mm-hmm. Out of prison they hired you? They know your past? They, they, they did know my past, yes. And they still did hire me, yes. Amazing. I know. I mean, you must have a natural talent. They, they Well, just to coach and to pull programs together, I mean, they— it was an amazing deal, and I did it for four years. And in four years, we had, we started out with 20 kids the first year, and we tried to get more, you know, just trying to get more black kids to play the game. We had white kids too. We didn't. We tried to get as many underprivileged, I guess you would say, is more important, but you know, more kids of color to play the game. And by the end, by the time I moved away from Philadelphia, and that program was still going, we had helped up to 120 kids. To That's get amazing. Yeah. Good for you. Now, what says Hockey Through Harmony? Harmony Through Hockey. Harmony Through Hockey. Har- it's good. It's good. No, it's good. Harmony Through Hockey is a program I, I started uh, back then. It was where we just we went and for, we gave kids free equipment, free coaching, free because that's the big thing with hockey is that it's too expensive for kids yeah, that don't come from money to play, especially kids of color. So and plus they're just not into the game. And for hockey to stay, you know, popular, we need to diversify it. Hockey is not the most diverse sport, but you right. explained why. I mean, it's it's an expensive sport. Right. Access to r- skating rinks year-round, of course, yes. is, is an issue. Yes. But I'm sure the equipment is very expensive as yeah. well. Coaching is expensive. You get good coaching at the pay. I mean, mm-hmm. it's just, it's, it just is. It's a game that's for for people with money. I mean, right. equipment is just, and especially when you're when you're young and you're just joining hockey, you're growing out of that equipment so fast because you grow when you're seven or eight faster. You grow from when you're 10 to 12 faster. Yep. So you're buying brand new skates for $400. The kid only wears them for half a season. Wow. And then you got to try and trade them up or trade down to somebody else. So it's a big trade game. And, and how did you get funding for your programs? The Philadelphia Flyers, the hockey team that I grew up admiring. Like I mean, I was like a it's like a, a New Yorker kid getting a job with the Yankees. That's I, mean, I got a job out of prison. Wow. Yeah. And were you did you were you tattooed up? And still everything? had a big, still had the swastika on my neck. Oh, what a role model! I know the Flyers still hired me. Amazing. Big swastika on my neck. I used to go coach black kids three days out of the week. 
in hockey. What are they saying? Like, coach, what is that? Yeah, most of them didn't know. Some of them knew I had a past. They knew that this funding and this program was special. You and know, so was coach. Yeah, yeah. And I would just <laughs> yeah. take them out and just play hockey with them every day, though, and just not, you know, and just build teams. You know, it's, 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 it's the whole point is that we have so much hockey gear on that you can't tell who's in there. Yeah. You just know he's, he either has the same color jersey on or he doesn't. Right. That's it. Right. And that's the most important part of the game. And keep the puck out of your net, put the puck in their net. And maybe you just teach them goals to kids, and kids just want to have fun. Yeah. They don't care. Yeah. They just want to hit that, you know, whatever. So That's uh, amazing. So, I got to do that for a long time. And I went on to go work for other teams. I went to go work for the Dallas Stars to wow. do it. I went and worked for the Anaheim Ducks. And I worked for the AAA division for the Minnesota Wild for their their, their program. So That's I, amazing. Yeah, just got good at coaching, studied the game. Even wasn't just doing Harmony through hockey. Started coaching real uh, competitive uh, hockey and uh, got good at it and yeah, won a bunch of national championships with it. So that's amazing. Yes, a couple things I have to ask about that. First of all, yeah. what's your takeaway after having done that? My takeaway from for one is that hockey is for everybody, and hockey is a great little analogies for life. Like, you know, hockey man, if if you get knocked over, see in football, there's a big battle, and then there's a whistle. Everyone helps get up, and you get up, and you start a new play. In hockey, man, people get hit. Yeah. You got to get to the back to the bench or get into the play. Like you can't lay there, right? right. right? You get sliced open. Or your teammate cuz you're you're leaving your team shorthanded if you just lay there. You got to get back up. You got to get into the game or get to the bench so someone can take your place. And there's like this whole drive for your team to always be uh, equal with one another. So it's just a great way to teach about life. Um I used to coach all my players and I used to teach these 10-year-olds about humility. I say, I want you all to learn about what humility is. Humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking about yourself less and thinking about your teammates. Hmm. And I used to make all the kids hang that on their walls all over their houses and stuff so they could stay team-oriented and stuff. So. Well, it seems like also that's sort of what you remind yourself in recovery as well. Right, and to always pick yourself back up. All, every kid that I've ever coached will tell you that. I drilled that in their head. You get back up. Don't lay on that ice. Don't fake getting hurt. None of that. You get up, get your butt back to the bench, or get back into the play. Yeah. And always get back up in the game of life, I tell Amazing. You. So, anyway. So, all right. So, now we know why hockey's so close yes. to your heart and into your life, and that's awesome. And there's, I'm sure, a lot more to talk about today about this. But it also is important that we bring up the fact that this is also the closing week of Black History Month. That's right. And you and I were discussing this, and uh, you brought to my attention that someone that matters a lot to you recently passed away. And this ties in really beautifully with that do you want to tell us about that absolutely so uh so for any anyone that knows hockey or um you can just look this up so there was a guy named paul gerard and he was a uh, uh, when i first got my job with the dallas stars or with their iowa stars which was their ahl affiliate he was their the coach and i got a job working for that team and part of my job was to be uh the assistant to the coach so i wasn't an assistant coach i wasn't a, i was just an assistant to the coaches so if the coaches needed something off ice any of that type of frank stuff, were you the water boy i, I kind of was their water boy i would be i mean i, I love the game that much i was honored to have that job but i did whatever the coaches ever needed they needed to make sure players uh, cars were taken care of whatever it might have been there was tons of different issues that would come up my job was to handle that with the coaches to make sure players are comfortable and ready to play hockey that's it and um, I, Paul Gerard was one of the coaches then, and he knew about my civil rights past, and he watched me build this Harmony Through Hockey program through this team that he's now coaching. And this Paul Gerard was the the only black hockey coach at the time in the NHL no or the American. Shit. 
or in the American Hockey League. He was the only black coach at the time. Wow. I mean, what was his journey to, to becoming a coach? Well, he was a Canadian, so he grew up just Canadian, so he didn't have that same American-style racism that he... But he still had definitely racism in his life. But he came up through the Canadian ranks and, uh, yeah, played some NH. He played in the he played in the big leagues, too, when he was younger. Amazing. Yeah, he was an amazing guy, really amazing guy. And he was a very humble man. Not, you know, people... Sometimes you had to remind, I, I, we have to remind them or I would talk to him about, you know, you're like, you're the only like black coach. And he's like, yeah, there'll be more. Like, he just had this confidence about him. Like, yeah, you know, yeah, it's okay. This is the beginning. Yeah. And um, he had a lot of true respect from all of his players. And I actually modeled. So after I worked for them is uh, right when I was just doing the harmony through hockey coaching, I wasn't doing full on hockey coaching yet. But after I worked with him for two years, I took like the style. I used to watch him coach all the time and. I kind of modeled the way I coached after this man. Wow! And he and so he inspired you as a coach as well. Oh, as a coach when yeah, and years la- years later, I when I wasn't working for the hockey team anymore, and he was still on. He was coaching back up in the NHL. I used to call him for advice how and how to coach. Sometimes it's amazing. And he he always take, there for you. Always, he always took my phone calls. Always answered my questions. Wow! And you say he was a big supporter in your civil rights work. Well, that's funny. So as we get into this. Paul, during the last couple of years, when I was still trying to hold my hockey coaching career down, and I would call him sometimes, and I would ask him for some advice on how to get certain players motivated, players are in a slump, what should I do? And he would answer all my questions and talk to me. And then he always ended it with this. The last three times I talked to Paul, I could tell you he said this to me. He said, oh, so you're still just doing the, the coaching thing, the coaching hockey thing? And I say, yeah. And he'd say, Frank, the world has enough good hockey coaches. We need more civil rights people. Wow. And so it would hurt my feelings because mm-hmm. I'm like trying to be a coach and I'm right. getting, this is like my paid <laughs> right. job. And Your I'm like, idol's wow. telling you, hey, yeah, you yeah, can do something else. Yeah, yeah. And, and I, I know that he wasn't saying I was a bad coach because I know I was a good coach, but he was saying that there's something bigger. Mm-hmm. And so when Paul passed last week, I called his wife, Cheryl, and I was like, I just got to tell you something. And I said, you know, Paulie, we call him Paulie when we're talking about him. I say Paulie, Paulie always was very behind all my civil rights things. And I told her at the times that I would call him and ask him questions, and then what he would say to me. And she used to say, and she said, "Yeah, he really liked when you did your civil rights work. He said you really had it. You had that thing. Wow. And that you should have stuck with it. Wow. Well, that's an important message to leave behind for you, I guess. Yeah. You're on the right track. Yeah, when I changed about three years ago, I about four years ago now, I changed my life to become fully to to stand for others, and I had to make a choice between hockey and one of those things. And actually, the choice was made for me, but I remember just knowing like I was supposed to walk away, and that Paul Paul's voice kept popping in my head saying, "You're supposed to be doing something else anyway." So when he passed, I made sure to call his wife and and pass that message that that stuck with me. Wow. That's awesome. So, yeah. Well, I'm sorry for your loss. I'm sorry for NHL's loss mm-hmm. and for hockey in general. It seems like, like Paulie was the man. Yeah, he was a good, good man. Yeah. So, and I'm, I'm glad I had him as an idol, an idol. Yeah. Uh, more, more of a, more of a, it was like an old elephant in my life mm-hmm. that kind of would. Your Obi Wan Kenobi. Yeah, he kind of would slap me back. Like with those, those comments, man. I remember they were kind of slappers in a way. Well, I mean, you know, he re- he clearly represented being an underdog mm-hmm. and the kind of people that we fight for and why this podcast is in existence. And he overcame a bunch, and yeah. that's an inspiration. And then someone who inspired you 
gave you words of inspiration and, and you've taken heed and that's a great thing, man. Yeah. And what a good man. He would take my calls. I would call him about minor league. I would call him about little kids playing hockey. <laughs> He's up in the NHL and he would take my calls and be like, well, I'll try this with the kids. And yeah. Amazing. Just amazing man. So That's awesome. Well, rest in peace. That's, rest uh, in peace. It's the best thing I can say. And um, we do have a, a guest calling in today that you want to talk to. Tell us a little bit about Derek. So, yeah, we have uh, Derek Hender coming on. So for people, uh, again, that don't know me or know my history or my past is that, I, I again, I was so into hockey for a while that I made it onto a, uh, I made an ESPN radio show for a while. For a year, I was actually on ESPN radio Amazing. doing an NHL hockey show with my co-host that we're going to have on, Derek Hender who also Derek knew Paul Gerard really well too, and that's why I really wanted to have him on today. Um, we've both been around that rink for years and seen that man carry himself with dignity and pride, and he went through cancer once before and kept it quiet, and I worked for the team then, and, he t and, and me and Derek got to witness that type of stuff. So, well, so is that what he passed from? He died from cancer, yeah. Oh, from, and, and, and he cancer. beat it once. And I'd like back. to say to the audience, fuck cancer. Yeah, 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 fuck absolutely. Terrible. Okay, our guest today is Derek Hender, who's a, a dear friend of, of Frank's. I know your kids grew up together. They played hockey together. Yep. You guys coached together. You played together. You had your ESPN radio hockey show together. Uh, welcome to the show, Derek. How are you, man? Excellent, man. Good to hear from you guys tonight. Thanks for being with us. My pleasure. So I was going to – one of the best ways a, t a show could ever start was me and Derek – so we had been coaching kids two or three years together now and doing pretty well, taking them different little tournaments, doing pretty well with them. And the parents all the time would just sit around and listen to me and Derek talk. Like me and Derek would just be talking at a family, you know, after we're at the game, we'd go into hotels and me and Derek would sit around, all the parents would drink and, get, and me and Derek would talk. And everyone would just listen. And a couple people would say, man, you guys should have a radio show or something. You know, and people were into me and Derek were like, well, let's get a podcast. And we did a podcast. Right. And then it got pretty well. A lot of people were listening. And then uh, ESPN moved in and said, we'd like to move you over. So That's amazing. Pretty organic type thing of just two guys talking hockey that knew, we kind of knew our trash, knew how to talk. And we had different coaching styles. I was more of the teach your kids to talk shit a lot on the ice, you know, Derek's more of the, you know, let's, let's keep it between the whistles, you know, that type of thing. So we had a great little uh, way of coaching together. So nice. anyway, that's my intro for Derek. Well, tell us a little bit about your experiences with Frank. My God, uh, I can't, I, I do remember the first time I met him. I don't know if I can repeat the story or not, but. Go ahead. Uh, Go ahead. I, you know the one I'm talking about, right? I know. Frank? Go ahead. Okay. Happen. So we're at Sunday night beer league. And uh, I'm in the locker room getting dressed, and the teams, you know, were just ahead of us were just coming off. And this one, I'll leave his name out, big muscle bound, steroid raging kind of guy. Came, uh, uh, apparently, him and Frank had had a little bit of history on the ice. And Frank came in the locker room first and said, You're not going to believe it. I just dropped this, and that's where, you know, who. <laughs> you're good. You're, <laughs> on, you're, on, you're on podcast. You're on, you're on a podcast. You're it's cool. okay. Say it all. Yeah. Okay. So uh, he, he's talking to us for about 10, 15 more seconds. And all of a sudden, in comes said motherfucker coming in through the door. The, the big guy saying, comes in. Want to fight me again. Piece of shit. I'm going to kill him. <laughs> so you knocked him down, but not out. I heard right. him. So my, yeah. my introduction was uh, basically hiding, you know, Frank hiding behind me uh, when this guy was looking through the locker room for him. But <laughs> I, I told the guy, I, I, said, I fought you fair on the ice. I'm not fighting you fair out here. 
Like, I'm just not. You're too big. And, uh, yeah. So that was my first introduction to this guy. You guys got kicked out of yeah. Beer League or suspended from Beer League. And for... it was love at first sight. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so we were talking earlier, Derek, about, uh, you know, Frank's journey in, in the world of hockey and, and his his transition in life. And I know you know his story, which is quite fascinating. And uh, I know our listeners are, are totally stoked on hearing about the, this path that Frank was on in hockey. And uh, you were obviously a big part of that. Uh, and also the Paul Gerard connection. I think that's an amazing thing that brought yeah. you guys together as well. Do you want to say anything about your connection? Uh, I had, uh, I know when the hockey team first came here, he was one of the first assistant coaches. And I, at the time, was basically in charge of running the lineups back and forth and bringing the game sheets down and stuff like that. And he, Paulie was always in the office because we were waiting on <laughs> the coach Dave Allison at the time because he, he was the show mm-hmm. he would, you know and so it'd be just kind of quiet we'd just kind of small talking and you know he was always had that bit of a sly smile on his face and he would uh, you really wouldn't think all the time he was listening but uh, mm-hmm. you know he was uh, just a very warm welcoming person um, and it just over the years it just kind of grew into a bit of an organic uh, friendship and uh, the one story that really sticks in my mind about Pauly, a couple of years had passed after he had moved on after the team had folded here and he had moved on and uh, to the ranks and uh, he was with Calgary, I believe with the NHL at the time. And he was back doing a summer clinic and uh, I was on the ice coaching the kids and he happened to be just come by and was on the bench talking to a few of the guys that he knew. And uh, I kind of went over and just, uh, you know, just to kind of shake his hand, acknowledge him. And at this had probably been five years since I had seen him. Uh, and just from our little bit of interaction, not only he, he took the time to come over and shook my hand and asked me how things are going, addressed me by my full name, which I honest to God, don't think I actually ever told him. Uh-huh. And he and he, he's, he tried breaking my balls about a couple of years after that, after the team had left. I had gotten uh, an opportunity to be an emergency backup for the uh, uh, visiting team uh, against our Iowa Wild here. And uh, so I had a little bit of notoriety from that. And the guys always made sure they tried to break my balls about that. Wait, wait a second. Wait a second. Now tell me, t- tell me that you, mm-hmm. you, you, you were what now? Emergency backup goaltender. So every team is required to have two goalies. Okay. And uh, there was a certain circumstance, independent circumstances that uh, when Milwaukee came into town and Texas had come into town only a couple of weeks apart, for some reason, either due to an injury or call up or whatever, they only had one goalie. So they had to sign me as what they call an e-bug, emergency backup goaltender. Wow. Were you like super stoked on that? I mean, that seems like a big opportunity. Uh, first time I did it, I was frightened shitless. Uh, <laughs> second time I did it was the time of my life. So there you go. Wow. So as I said, Paul didn't even wasn't even around at that time. He had heard about it, remembered it, and that was the first, one of the first things he started breaking my balls about when I'm talking with this big grin on his face. I'm thinking, holy shit, this guy remembers me. Now he remembers he remembers the story about me. Now he's going to take time to break my balls. Mm-hmm. How cool is this? Uh, he that's just the kind of guy Paul Gerard was. Wow, seems like a hell of a guy. Yeah, he was. He was like, a, yeah. almost in a way, like a Johnny Appleseed of hockey, too. Like, everywhere he went, he kind of left little bits of hockey wherever he went. People always remembered him as 
Yeah. Again, he and he was he was the guy that would come up and just talk to the kids all the time. And like Derek said, he would come to summer clinics, some just for people that don't know the hockey lingo. That means like where the coaches all get jobs, uh, just coaching kids in little scrimmages and and breakout drills or whatever. And so it, it it's uh, yeah, it's a lot for a coach to come down there because you know he's going to get bombarded by parents, by all these other people that are going to want to you know yeah you know. Hey, do you think it ever? Do you think it ever? Did he recognize the importance of him being an African-American or a black person in the game? Did it matter? Because I, one of the things that I noticed a lot right now, actually was, we had a discussion about this earlier today, how cool it is in today's environment. Yeah, there's a lot wrong. There's a lot that needs to change. But it's also really cool that young people of color are in media and in sports starting to see versions of themselves in mm -hmm. positions of power, in positions of fame and fortune and success because that's the motivating factor when you're a young person. You go, man, one day I'm going to do that, which wasn't really around for a long time in mm -hmm. our society. So did he did he get that? Did he see the gravity of that? I remember him talking about it before, saying that if, if he could do it, anyone could do it. Right. So he had that type of attitude about it. Because mm -hmm. when he would come and talk with some of my kids who were all black players when I was doing Harmony Through Hockey, he would come down and uh, talk with those kids on the bench all the time. And he would just let them know, like, if I could do it, you can do it. That's awesome. And the kids just, you know. I mean, he was the real deal. Amazing. Now, Derek, I don't know if Frank has told you, but, you know, our podcast is, is not just about hockey. This one might be. But uh, the main reason we've come together is to, to really motivate and, and work together to, uh, to, to share with society kind of what needs to change and what needs to get better and, and all those things. It sounds like Paul was a Pauly, should I say, mm. was a big part of, of some of that spark in Frank's life. And had, were you at all ever influenced by Frank and what he is as an inspiration as a person? Because I think that's a big deal. Uh, you know, as much as I crap as I give him, uh, I, he's my brother. Uh, <laughs> he's the closest thing I have to a brother that's not, that I, we're not related to. Mm. Uh, uh, doing Having so much fun with him doing uh, the podcast, the radio show, coaching, you know, spend the weekends on the road in, in hotels and stuff. And, uh, you know, 6 a.m. practices with the kids, late Tuesday night games, stuff like that. Uh, a real, real bond with this guy. He is, uh, he's, a, he's an upstanding guy. What can I say? He's my brother. Right. That's awesome. Amazing. Well, Derek, thank you, man, and thank you for sharing your stuff about Paulie, and uh, I was glad to get you on this. I wanted to get the guy on who put up with me for two years with doing another <laughs> podcast. I figured you'd get a little bit of, you know, a little bit of fame here is that uh, thank you for putting up with me for that, and it was amazing doing a show with you, and you are on point with your hockey knowledge, and uh, I, I thoroughly enjoyed every time we got to get together and, and talk hockey yeah. and talk boys and, hockey, you know, everything. So thank you. Yep. Hey, we were podcast legends, right? We were. <laughs> we are. Hey, you still are, clearly. Yeah, yeah. We made it from podcast to ESPN. We actually did the fucking deal, man. Yeah, we that's amazing. It. That's amazing. Yeah. So. Well, we really appreciate you coming on, man. And we, you're always you're always welcome in this house. And, uh, you know, I, I'm with you. Frank has become very much so a brother to me as well. And, uh, you know, from where he comes from to where he is now is, is very inspirational and important. And, uh, you know, we want to celebrate that. And that's what this is all about. Absolutely. Absolutely. People can't get enough of this guy's story. It's uh, it's it's amazing. It is. And so are yeah. you, man. Thank you so much for for calling in and being a part of it. And is there anything you want to say to, to Paul Gerard's family or or make mention of anything that uh, you want to say on your parting words? No, that he was he was he was loved by a lot of guys and his uh, the, the, the roots of his 
influence on young people, on the game, on players, on me, uh, run a lot deeper than would probably be commonly seen. Wow. There's no question. That's amazing. Well, we appreciate you being here, and thanks for your insights, and uh, we look forward to talking to you again soon, man. All right. Thanks, guys. Cheers. That's awesome, man. Seems like a great guy. He's a super good guy. <clears throat> awesome. Fucking Canadian. Derek, That's all we ever... Do you think he would, like, rode a snowmobile to where he was talking to us right now? Isn't that what they do in Canada? No, he's not there no more. He's in, he's in Iowa. Oh, So, yeah, thing. he yes, still might be. Thing. Yes, yes, he is, actually. He's Instead of riding a moose, he's riding a snowmobile. It's okay. Horse strong carriage. <laughs> all right, so let's go on to the next portion of the show, which, yes. in my mind, is... Um, Really, to talk a, a lot, you had said you wanted to talk about Black History Month. Yes. You want to talk about its influence on you currently and where we're at and some things to think about moving forward. Yeah. You know, coming from a person who, you know, hated the black community, hated black culture, hated, feared and despised every bit of it, um, even though at times I had to be raised around it, right? And you know, as I got older and I got, you know, into this neo-Nazi stuff and, and that hatred grew to the, you got to remember, I wanted a race war. Right. Like, I truly, when I sat in a room, I wanted a race war. If you would have sat in a room and talked about the plans that they did at Oklahoma City bombing, I would have been Timothy McVeigh. I said I would have jumped left. I would have. Right. Just know that. I still can't believe you're my friend. I know. I can't believe I'm your friend either. <laughs> that hurt. <laughs> but... <laughs> Uh, seriously, I, I, I really always, and so when I got out of this movement, I want to say that like so many of the black people that have come into my life or were in my life before I got into this neo-Nazi life have shown me so much love, shown me so much forgiveness. When I got out of this movement, one of the first friends I ever talked to was my friend Tez, who... Uh, still very good friends with to this day. And he was a black guy, a black kid I grew up with in my dad's neighborhood. And he was always cool with me. We always got along pretty well. But when I got into the neo-Nazi stuff, I'd see him around once in a while, and we'd just give each other head nods, never nothing. When I got out of the neo-Nazis, I was driving in the back of a pickup truck with him. And I remember my exact words was, I'm sorry I turned my back on you. Wow. And he, What was his response? He, he said... Man, it's all good. He's like, you were always a little crazy. He's like, you know, it's all good. I, he said, I knew that wasn't you. I knew that wasn't you. Wow. And he's like, it's all good. And he was having a barbecue or something the next day. And he was like, why don't you come to the barbecue tomorrow? Why we were in a thing. So the next day I went over to his house and hung out with his family and friends. And um, I mean, how this barbecue took place how long after you sort of got out of it? Uh, I was out of the neo-Nazis maybe uh, about a year at that time. And did like, everyone at the party know who Frank was? Oh, yeah. I still had the swastika on the side of my neck and everything back then. Just Jesus through my Christ. hair. Yeah, yeah. Everyone knew. My whole neighborhood knew, where I was, knew what I was. I mean, so you're saying that this community that you hated and committed whatever you did yep. against them, whether yeah. it be in thought or practice, right? now you're at a barbecue with them? Right. And let's think about this this way. I always try to think of it from their point of view. Here's the guy. Here, here we know for a fact, yes, m in ways of our society, we oppress black people. I belong to a movement that says, for one, that's not true, and that they're just lazy and criminals, right? 
And now the turn, the, the find out that the, it's true. They are kind of oppressed, right? The, and on top of that, like, here's a person who they should just be like, how dare you? They should beat the shit out of you. Yeah, how dare you? Like, we really are oppressed. You guys are the idiots believing lies, saying right. that we're, we haven't been oppressed. And now, and you're saying you're still better than us? And now all of a sudden, you, but now you quit, like, and every one of them was just like, I get it. Like, I'm not every black person, but I, I've, I can't tell you how many black friends I have in my life and loved ones and family members now, so it's not like, but I get to, how many of them just like, eh, I get it. I understand. Well. And, and, and like, and you don't have those feelings today. And I, and I can tell you almost everyone knows I don't. You give me five minutes of your time and we're talking about race or race relations, you're going to see that, you know, where I stand on things. But I can just tell you that there were so many times where I remember one time like having a dinner with a person and they didn't know my story. It was this black woman. And we were having dinner, and then it came up about my story. And at first she was horrified. I remember that. And then as we are having the conversation, I just remember this look and this piece of forgiveness. It was one of the times I truly felt forgiveness. Wow. Um, and so I see this all the time. For me, this is where I'm starting to stand up for my teammates. So when I hear about stuff like Black History Month and people who say, why don't we have White History Month and all mm. the other bullshit that comes along with just trying to treasure what we have in this one short month, the shortest month of the year, <laughs> we get Black History Month. Um, I think it's amazing to support our fellow Americans and the struggles they had. Um, it's kind of what's making our culture and tribe the way it is is that they had to go through that like american black culture is for one one of the most imitated cultures around the world you know the hip-hop urban culture of america is is imitated everywhere Ireland. yeah it's hugely influential right and here's this and we need to treasure that in america we need and that's what i look at black history is like who are the new people that are coming up today that are making the new history for us all you know what i mean and so we need to keep encouraging them. And also around this time of Black History Month, I want to bring up to the point that a lot of times when we sit there and we watch Martin Luther King do his speeches, we watch Malcolm X, and once you get past the, the I had a dream kumbaya stuff, they always talk about the same thing. Police brutality. Yep. Malcolm X, Huey Newton, Fred Hampton, they all talked about it. So when we start to treasure these leaders that we call silver but we still haven't fixed that one problem. There's other things that we've fixed. The union fights and allowing more black people to be hired in jobs and housing. We've fixed a lot of these things that we could the best we could. We still need to do some stuff in housing here. But the one thing that they consistently talked about was police brutality. And we still haven't fixed it yet. Yeah, we're, we're working on it. We're working we're on working it. We're working on it. So I just, you know, when we start to put up those those great black leaders, those great American civil rights black leaders, let's go a little deeper on their, their message of what they were talking about. Yeah, absolutely. And not just the kumbaya, I have a dream stuff. Yeah. That's, I think it's an amazing thing to say. I mean, your ode to Black History Month is you are the guy that could be the focal point of a lot of African Americans here, certainly in the United States, who could point to someone like you specifically and say, this is somebody who was my arch enemy, mm-hmm. and yet I still embrace him. I accept him, I forgive him, and I embrace him and, and, and want him to succeed and be happy. They, they as, a, as a culture, um, have had to, for the longest time, learn forgiveness mm-hmm. and, and learn how to 
handle some very uncomfortable truths. And I think Black History Month is a very important thing for, for someone like myself, just a good old white boy from the United States, mm-hmm. to embrace some very uncomfortable truths. I saw an amazing thing today. You know, history, if, if, you're, if you're looking at history, it's going to make you feel uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. If you read about history, it shouldn't make you upset. You know, if you're witnessing, um, uh, you know, a documentary and, and, and seeing some of the things that happened in history and, and you're, you're infuriated by it, then you're actually experiencing history. Mm-hmm. If you're reading or watching or learning about history and it makes you happy and proud, you're probably not <laughs> really looking at actual history. <laughs> right. Of course, there are some things to be proud of, but most of the pride that we have as Americans was built on the backs of some really uncomfortable history. Mm-hmm. And Black History Month, for me, has always been a time to just kind of remember that it's uh, it's not just because... I'm perfect. Right, right. It's because of sacrifice and pain and suffering, not just of black people, but but mostly in our country, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, so much of what we take for granted every day was built on the backs of people who didn't get to benefit from that. Yeah. And I think one of the things that we could get to really get to tap in here is to, I think, black women who have been the most downtrodden people in our society, not most unheard. I think women in general, but of yep. course, African American women have really had a really short stick. And they're, when you see the way that black women still carry themselves with mm-hmm. pride, confidence, dignity, confidence, forgiveness, um, again, I, I just that power to keep rising up is something that I think America is going to use and need that power as we move forward. In that, that, you know. No matter what, we can get through this type of attitude, which is I really see a lot with black women. And I just think that, that us tapping into that black women power is, is something that's going to be good for us, for this sure. country. And, sure. uh, and it's all part of our culture together anyway. It's all part of our culture together. Absolutely. Here, making one, we gotta, we're making one tribe. I mean, it's happening. You know, racist people, when I was part of the neo-Nazi world, we used to talk about how by the time... The black race is going to be more than the white race. There's going to be a white genocide. That's the big scare. Okay, there's going to be more black people than there are white people. And they're going to come get us. And they're going to come get us. And if you look and and other minorities too, they would think all these people are going to you know they're going to get and they're going to come get us. And when I looked at that back in the day, you you factually look at it, it looks true. But there's one thing that I forgot to make the equation. Love. Us mixing. And that other race that's popping up inside of our country that's making our own inside tribe. of our world. Yeah. yeah. And so I forgot. Because of this part where you think there's going to be this big white genocide on white people, by that time our country's so mixed. We're so full of each other's blood. Yeah. It's not going to happen. This all goes to that same fear of people celebrating this black culture in our country, which is actually really American culture, is all this. You know? Yeah. We've come a long way, and we're, we still have a lot of ways to go. Absolutely. Well, I, I would say one thing from my, from my side as, a, as a, a, a survivor of the last 52 years on Earth, um, I'm really impressed with the progress we've made in a lot of places. Mm-hmm. Um, it, I do want to just say that for Black History Month, one of the things I want to look back on in the next 50 years and look back on some of the historical fact of our progress mm-hmm. is that the African-American community is happy and comfortable with celebrating who they are without having to go out of their way to do it. Mm-hmm. That they, they can just be prideful 
and and respected and um, assimilated into our world in a way where we stop sort of noticing what people look like so much and start really working towards what people are like mm-hmm. because that's you know to me the the thing that really needs to change is uh, judging books by covers mm-hmm. and and I would like all, not just black history but all of our history to look back and say there was a time when we would look at each other and, and we would make decisions before anyone even knew anything about it mm-hmm. I mean I remember you said that that, that you you had come across um, a, a gr- an amazing guy Daryl Davis who's going to be an upcoming guest on the mm-hmm. Frank Mink show um, and, and he has this amazing TED talk that I just recently watched where he would approach Klansmen and he would say why do you hate me you don't even know me. We need to get there. Mm-hmm. We need to get to a place where it's about who you know mm-hmm. and not how you look. And uh, I look forward to that, and I think shows like this are going to help us get there. Mm-hmm. I know it's just a couple of white guys talking about hockey, but we're also talking about the late Paul Gerard mm-hmm. and his contribution to not just the sport of hockey, but his contribution to his own community of, of black people mm-hmm. um, and, and how he was able to just forge his own path and achieve success, not because of the way he looked, but because of the character that he was. Right, absolutely. And I think another thing that's going to be hopefully in the future is that we remember that for the black community has been telling us and giving us signs and, and, and telling us there's been problems in their community forever, and it's time for us to listen. Agreed. You know, for white people to listen. Yeah. Right. Well, That's you know, I'll say this. Uh, again, a couple of white guys, Black History Month, Frank Mink Show. You know, uh, I, I've been known to uh, to use the marijuana. Mm-hmm. I, I, find, uh, I find that it's quite useful yes. in enduring life on planet Earth. Mm-hmm. And, of course, having kids. Um, but um, I remember early on when there would be these rallies. And they're always trying to get people to say, hey, let's de- you know, decriminalize it. Let's legalize pot. And you might think I'm off on a strange subject, but here's my no, point. Let's... My point is they always had some douchebag with a tie-dye shirt. Man, we need to get this legal, bro. You know, it was right, like this right. whole thing. And I kept thinking to myself, you know what? No one's going to listen to that. Mm-hmm. No one's going to listen to this guy. He's probably the coolest dude and really smart, and he right, knows right, who's right. some. But you, the people that are going to make the change are not going to hear what he's saying. Right. Because we're back to judging books by covers. Yes. It's interesting because I know that you and I doing a show like this and celebrating Black History Month as two non-African American, non-blacks, it might get some other people to listen. Yeah. And I really hope they do because Absolutely. it's time. You know, if, if, the, if the black community has been screaming and no one's listening, then it's time for the white community to start screaming on their behalf. That's and it. I'm here to scream. That's it. I'm just here to be a parrot. Parrot out what they what they've been telling me and 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 knowing that it's true and and parroting out what what they need. Aside from listening to the Frank Meing show, there's a couple things we can do as listeners and as members of society. We can reach out and we can offer help, and we can do that in a number of ways. Some of those ways would be contacting the NAACP. What can you do to help? Can you give them some money? Can you give them some of your time? The ACLU. That's an amazing organization. I know that Frank, you do a lot of work with yep. them and and help them. The YMCA, the Southern Poverty Law Center. The International Organization of Black Law Enforcement Executives. That's that's an amazing. That's a good one. Yeah, absolutely. These are some things that we could do that might be helpful. And, and and if there's something local to you that matters to you, anything you can do to be a part of it. And if you don't want to give your time and you don't want to give your money, we appreciate you taking a couple of minutes out of your day to just listen to what we have to say. Yeah, so you're educated on the situation. So that when people say, anytime we talk about police 
Everyone goes, oh, that great defunding plan. And we're, we're, we're here to say that it's not about defunding. No. It's we about allocating do. funds in the right way for training, education, help. Yeah. Cops need help. Yeah. I mean, we are not for taking their money. In fact, we want to fund the homicide divisions, fund the rape divisions, fund the shit out of them. Let them catch the fucking bad guys. Absolutely. But, you know, we want to stop funding the roadside bullying, the pulling over a black uh, lacrosse team in Georgia and searching their whole van and, you know, their yeah. whole school bus uh, for a little bit of weed they won't thought they were going to find. Like, it's just, we don't, we, we want to defund move them. Yeah, it's, it's called evolution. Yeah, right? It'd be nice I mean, if we evolve a little. Right. So. We have a bunch of other ways you can go out and videotape cops. You can keep a camera on cops when they have people pulled over. Just stay out of the way and just put a camera on them. Let them know for everyone's safety, you are now recording because we can't trust what's going on right now until we get some real concrete police reform. Absolutely. We look forward to learning more about our audience and sharing more with you guys with your comments. And um, I really look forward to sharing some of our future guests. we got some great ones in the pipeline. We can't announce them quite yet because we don't have firm dates, but I can tell you this, I'm super stoked. actually a little nervous about interviewing some of these people. These are people I've looked up to um, a lot in my life. So um, I'm looking forward to it. But, um, Frank, you know, again, thank you for, uh, for letting us do this, man. This is a big deal. Yeah, we're going to do it. We're going to start and help start the change uh, to really start healing some stuff in this country. And I'd like to say to you, Happy Black History Month. Happy Black History Month.